Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're going to be talking with members of the Fry Street Quartet and physicist Dr. Robert Davies about the Crossroads Project. They say that at the dawn of the 21st century, humanity has arrived at an extraordinary crossroads, a time and place where scientific ability to identify the unprecedented risk intersects a societal inability to respond. The Crossroads Project fuses science, imagery, and music in an exploration of nature, humanity, and the paths that lie before us. So we're going to talk about this. We'll hear some music as well uh, from the project. Uh, we bring in uh, some members, well, three of the four, right, of the Fry Street Quartet. Uh, Rebecca McFall, violinist, joins us. Thank you. Hello. Thanks for joining me. Um, and uh, Bradley Otteson, uh, viola. Good morning. Joins me as well. And uh, violinist Robert Waters. Great to be here, Tom. Thank you. And uh, physicist uh, Dr. Robert Davies. Hi, Tom. Us. Thanks for, uh, for joining us. Um, let, me, let me turn, uh, I guess I'll, I'll turn to you, Rebecca McFall, and uh, the others uh, of the quartet can join in. Oh, I should mention Anne Francis Bayless is the cellist yes. of, of the quartet, not with us today. Um, so, Rebecca McFall, uh, tell me about the Fry Street Quartet. How did that begin? The Fry Street Quartet began a long time ago now, in 1997. Um, we formed in Chicago. Uh, we were just four uh, string players who loved playing chamber music, and we were just out of school and had dreams of, of uh, having a professional life as a string quartet. And there were lots of interim steps, but they soon led to Logan, Utah, where we've been for 20 years now. Mm. Now, Fry Street, is that a street in Chicago? Is that It, okay. it sure is. It's one yeah. block north of Chicago Avenue. <laughs> okay. All right. This is quite unusual, I think, to have a, a quartet in residence. It is a rare thing. Um, and in fact, when we took the interview and audition for this position, um, it was the only uh, such position in the country that we were aware of at the time. And um, it's it's a, an interesting and we think effective model to have four artists who work together um, as, as teaching artists, essentially. We have an artistic life and we have a, a teaching life based at an institution. Um, which affords a lot of opportunities for, for growth and interaction. Yeah. So, Rebecca, you and Anne, I think, original members of the... the Pretty much. Okay. Anne was, was just a, a couple of years into okay. the endeavor, yeah. actually, once we, once we got our first kind of job. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, very good. And uh, let's see, Robert and Bradley came a little bit later, right? Yes, uh, it's uh, been about 12 years for me. And yeah. About, and about 10 for me. Ah, very good. Um, so t tell me a little bit about your background, Bradley. Uh, uh, pull the microphone a little closer to your mouth. There you go. Yes. Well, uh, when I joined the quartet, I was coming from an orchestral career. Um, I had uh, lived and worked in the, in the Boston area for many years and then uh, moved to Canada for several seasons to take a job with an orchestra there. And uh, at that point, the Fry Street Quartet had... Um, an opening for a new violist and they reached out and got in touch with me and uh, you know the lure of playing string quartets full-time and teaching at an institution with a residency like this at Utah State was uh, just too much to pass up so I was drawn in and it's been um, just a wonderful partnership ever since as a matter of fact I think one of the first things I did when I moved here to Logan was come here on your show and talk about life in a string quartet yeah yeah that's uh yeah that's, that's a wonderful wonderful opportunity I just I want to take a side trip uh, about the viola 
Uh-huh. So when they do the kids, kids come in, do they have, I don't know, do people look down on the viola? They want to be violinist, or they, they, they you know, I d- think d- defend the viola for me. At the dawn of the twenty first century, I believe the viola has really kind of come in to its own. So it used to be that you know there were a lot of jokes about violists. And, yeah. You know, it, the joke was that when a, you know, violinist had retired, they were put out to pasture in the viola section and things <laughs> like that. But, you know, you know, the viola is a unique instrument and it's yeah. a truly uh, human voice. And so the great composers have always uh, found ways to use the viola to express profound thoughts and feelings. Many of the composers were violists themselves. Mm-hmm. And actually, if I could plug another upcoming performance, I'll be playing a viola concerto with the Utah, uh, with the USU Symphony Orchestra. Oh, wonderful! In at the beginning of December. Yeah. And the piece is called La Llorona, and it's by uh, the uh, composer Gabriela Lina Frank, and it uses the viola to portray um, the spirit of La Llorona, which comes from uh, Latin American and Hispanic folklore. Yeah, I, I, I love, I've, I'm familiar with many versions of La Llorona, yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is an orchestral version. This is an orchestral poem, yeah. tone poem in which yeah. the viola takes the, takes the, the le- voice. Is yes. La Llorona, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so, Robert Waters, um, tell me a little bit about your background. Let's see, pull the microphone over close to you as you're looking to me. Yeah, there you go. So uh, I joined the, the quartet a little bit later in my career, uh, and so my first uh, forays into the profession involved an or- orchestra position in San Francisco, and I uh, had a university job uh, in Chicago. Um, but chamber music has always been really my, my primary love, even uh, since I was a kid. And I had a, a piano trio uh, that I was involved with for about nine years or so, and just looking around for different chamber music projects that could um, scratch that itch. And so when the chance to really become a part of a full-time string quartet with such marvelous colleagues and such a wonderful setting here, um, it was a, a pretty easy decision. Yeah. Uh, tell me about the quartet, and je- not the Fry Street, but just the, the, the form of the quartet. This seems... This seems to be very enduring, right? Two two violins, viola, and uh, cello. Seems to be magic there. It's such magic. Um, Haydn um, wrote over 60 uh, absolutely wonderful pieces just for the string quartet alone and really kick-started an incredible tradition of what we can easily say are hundreds, if not thousands, of really, really top-notch writing by composers over the last several hundred years. Uh, and so... One of the great advantages and um, privileges, I would say, of being in a string quartet is uh, every day when you show up to rehearsal, you're in touch with genius. You're playing some incredible work by a great composer, either living or from years past, and you kind of get inside of their soul, inside of their head, and and even pieces that the Fry Street Quartet that we've played, or, or I know many other string quartet colleagues say the same thing, pieces that... We've played over and over again. We're always discovering something new and, um, and that we, you know, didn't discover the last time we played it. It's just it's, it's a constant source of renewal on a on a sort of emotional and spiritual and intellectual level. Mm. So before we get to Crossroads, we'll get to it shortly. Rebecca, I'll um, maybe select a couple of highlights from your oh. from from the years. You know, <laughs> oh, there. That's a that's a tough question. I mean, I we've made. 
We've had a number of projects that have sort of served as milestones over the years. Um, in 2008, we made a project of playing all of uh, Beethoven's quartets, 16 full quartets, 17 if you count um, uh, Opus 130, which has two versions of it, and, um, and performed all of them um, in the course of two weeks. So there was this immersion experience. Um, and in 2018, we played all six Bartok quartets. Um, we've made projects out of out of Haydn quartets, kind of touching on um, the pillars of the quartet literature. But another piece of that has been our commissioning work, working with living composers, and um, uh, that has been an extremely exciting continuing endeavor. Um, we have a, a composer actually, who Brad just mentioned, Gabriella Lena Frank, is writing a string quartet for us that'll be um, premiered. I can never keep the date straight. Uh, next fall. Next fall. Um, we just um, uh, worked on a, a piece by Clarice Assad, another really vibrant, interesting composer, and also commissioned two really fantastic pieces by Laura Kaminsky and Libby Larson, for the other subject of this interview, which is the Crossroads Project. Wonderful. Well, let me turn to uh, Robert Davies. Uh, give me a little bit about your background. Well, uh, Tom, so I uh, have studied physics. In fact, I graduated from Utah State University a long time ago uh, with my doctorate here and uh, went off into the world. I was working in a, a field of physics called quantum optics for a number of years. Uh, which is the quantum mechanical behavior of light, which is super interesting and super cool. Uh, and then at some point uh, when I was in a research post in England, I got interested in climate change as a science communication issue. And kind of like most physicists, I'm, I'm quite arrogant about my ability to explain science to the unwashed. <laughs> and so I thought, well, I will just tell people about climate change and they will understand and everything will be just fine. And that was about 15 years ago. Of course, it was a completely ridiculous uh, thought. Um, and But I have, uh, once you start talking about climate change, you realize that it's connected to energy, and it's connected to food, and it's connected to economics, and it's connected to uh, inequity and social justice in a very deep level, all of these things. And so for 15 years, I've really been studying those things, synthesizing the work that other people do in understanding the connections of those things, and then trying to put together narratives uh, that help the rest of us understand this really broad spectrum of, of science that comes together in a whole suite of ecological and social challenges that we're facing. Tell me a little bit more about, um, uh, well, what's your goal with, you know, you, you're, you're explaining, you're amplifying, really, I guess, part of it, you're trying to persuade, are you? You know, that's a great question. So the position I have at, here at Utah State University was created about six or seven years ago and is quite unique. Uh, it's in critical science communication. And so not just science communication. I would love to be out there uh, talking to general audiences about general relativity, but it's just a fascinating thing. But the fact is we don't make important societal decisions around general relativity. We do make very important societal decisions around the sciences of, uh, of climate change, of our environment, uh, and even social science. And so the idea is we are facing these very large challenges. Climate change is one that's known very well, I think, now. Uh, but separate from climate change, certainly connected in certain ways, but uh, separate from that, 
a massive crash of biodiversity across the planet, dramatically elevated extinction rates, um, a complete, very acute unsustainability of all of the systems that we humans depend upon, our food system, for example. And so we need to make decisions about these. We're, we're at the moment not um, following paths that will successfully navigate this landscape without huge uh, amounts of human suffering. And so the idea is to, is to take what science has learned and understood about these things and try to help the rest of society do that. So it's a storytelling with, and you're absolutely right, with an objective of getting us to move towards a place of meaningful response. Mm. Um, so uh, tell me how Crossroads began. What, was this your idea? What? Uh... Well, so 15 years ago, I, mm. uh, as I said, I thought, well, I will explain it to people and they will understand. Mm. And I found I was giving many scientific uh, talks about climate change. And people, I felt, were actually understanding the science intellectually. It's not that complicated a story when you distill it down to its essence. But then those same people were walking out of my lectures where I just told them we're on the hairy edge and into their normal lives where it didn't feel like that. Uh, people with good jobs and good homes and plenty of food and nice vacations in a lovely, beautiful place here in Utah to live and lovely community. So they weren't really, I think, connecting on a visceral level uh, with the information. And of course, it's that kind of connection that gets us to start to respond. Uh, I have really powerful visceral experiences with chamber music and uh, something I actually developed when I was in my research post in England. There was lots of chamber music and I would go to these concerts and be constantly shushed by the audience because I was rooting around in my <laughs> pockets for some notes because my, my thinking was unlocked on the physics puzzles I was working on in quantum optics. So fast forward when I'm here and I'm, I'm doing these talks and we have this amazing professional string quartet here at Utah State University in residence. And I was going to their concerts, and I just wondered, well, what would happen if we brought an audience in and pushed out all the little puzzles they bring in with them, like I did with my physics, and put some very compelling information in front of them, the information on global change, uh, which includes climate change, but all of these other things. And not just the challenges that we face, but the amazing way that the world around us works to support life. So put that front and center in an audience's minds, and now while they're trapped there all together with that sitting there, unleash some powerful music on that and just let them sit with it and see uh, what effect that has. That was the basic idea. I approached the quartet uh, more than 10 years ago now with this idea, fully expecting them to say, that's really interesting, but we don't really do that. Uh, but I was wrong. They jumped at the opportunity to work with me on that. And so that's the, the genesis of it. And then together we really created the structure of the performance. Mm -hmm. so Rebecca McFall, what, what did you think? Well, I was excited and intimidated all at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the idea that we could um, work on a project that um, – sort of went, went beyond the concert experience in this way on a topic that we were all concerned about, um, felt important. And, and it felt important um, to me also just as an, as an educator. Uh, this was a topic then, um, 10, 12 years ago, that wasn't being widely discussed. And for all that we knew about it from the science, it was, um, it was just 
seeming important to kind of find ways to bust open the conversation so that we might connect and make progress on this topic. So in essence, we were we were game and, and put together nascent performances that uh, were pretty clunky. And, and that always led to another next step. And, and early on, I think maybe, maybe the most important um, step that, that we took that brought the, the project into a level of maturity was commissioning uh, a string quartet for the project specifically. And we lucked into finding this wonderful composer, Laura Kaminsky, who uh, really embraced the project and wrote us a really wonderful string quartet. Well, wonderful. Let's, um, we're going to hear some music as we go along. Let's hear, um, uh, the, the, I guess, the first track here. Or at least a bit of the first track. We were a couple of minutes. This is the piece called "Rising Tide," right? Mm-hmm. First uh, track we're going to hear is uh, H2O, the source of life. Uh, Robert Bradley, anything you want to say about this? I can say a little okay, bit about yeah. this. Uh, we were talking about the viola uh, earlier, and and Laura is a, uh, a great proponent of the instrument. And this this movement actually begins with um, an extended viola soliloquy. Um, in thinking about water, um, Laura wanted to evoke something very ancient and very elemental. Uh, she talked about trips she had taken to Armenia and uh, wanting to portray this sort of ancient and arid landscape. And um, the sense of water being the source of life, um, starting, uh, it starts very slow and very atmospherically. And as the movement gains momentum, it sort of turns into a flood, a torrent of notes, um, sort of expressing all the ways in which uh, water runs through our lives. Well, let's hear this just a couple of minutes um, from uh, Lara Kaminsky's Rising Tide. This is a couple of minutes from the first movement called H2O, The Source of Life.
Just a couple of minutes from Laura Kaminsky's Rising Tide, the first uh, movement there. Um, Mr. Robert Waters, what uh, what do you think about as you're listening to the quartet, including yourself, perform that? Uh, really just a great admiration for Laura um, and her her uh, writing as a as a composer, and particularly for string quartet, uh, was um, immediately really captivating. Um, but even more so, uh, working with her directly. It's, of course, it's one of the great privileges of working with a living composer, particularly one with whom you've created this relationship where you've commissioned uh, um, a piece. Uh, it's it's always wonderful to just be able to ask questions that you can't ask of. Beethoven of any of his string quartets. You can't call Beethoven up, up on the phone. But with Laura, not only could we ask her the, all, the many questions uh, just either surrounding minute details or, or broader um, uh, kind of philosophical questions on the piece, um, she is so uh, not just intelligent but has possesses a wonderful creativity and flexibility in her mind to be able to see um, all kinds of things from different perspectives and uh, can kind of adapt and is very agile in the way that she thinks about art and its relationship to society. Uh, And so she was really uh, not just a great musician to work with, but a really great partner and a great kind of citizen artist to work with on on a project of this kind. And um, yeah, she she has become a great uh, friend of of Rob and the quartets, and we... uh, so enjoy just continuing this relationship with her and um, uh, in in support of the goals that the Crossroads Project um, has articulated, just trying to move our society towards action on this topic. And she's a, she's an incredible advocate in that way, as well as a, a wonderful musician. We're uh, overdue for a break. Let's take a break. Um, we're talking with members of the Fry Street Quartet and physicist uh, Dr. Robert Davies about their project, the Crossroads Project, which is an intersection of, well, Robert Davis, how would you describe this? Music and and uh, spoken word to steal from the Tabernacle Choir, I guess. What, what, what is this? You know, we call this uh, performance science, I yeah. think. And uh, so it combines, yes, this information, hopefully somewhat artistically delivered, along with some uh, some some vivid, vivid imagery from some wonderful visual artists, uh, both photographers and abstract painting. Uh, and then, of course, this very powerful music. Uh, you can find this at uh, the, the thecrossroadsproject.org. That's right. right yeah. Uh, there's a film. Yeah, I guess you can watch uh, at that site as well. Um, so let's, uh, let's talk more about this following this break. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams. We're uh, in conversation and hearing some music as well with members of the Fry Street Quartet. They're the um, string quartet in residence at Utah State University. Uh, we're talking with uh, violinist Robert Waters, uh, violinist Rebecca McFall, and uh, violist uh, uh, um, Bradley Otteson. And uh, cellist Anne Frances Bayless is not with us today, but of course she's a key member of the quartet. Uh, we're also talking with physicist Dr. Robert Davies. And uh, all of them, of course, are involved in the Crossroads uh, Project. You can find the Crossroads Project at thecrossroadsproject.org. Um, um, I want to start this segment, Dr. Davies, with uh, having you uh, expand on something you said. You said you were in England. 
you'd attend uh, classical music performances, including chamber music. This would unlock the mystery, I think, as you say. You'd, you'd lock puzzles in your heads. Tell me more about that, the, the power of music. You know, I, uh, it's, it's such an interesting thing. I'm not sure how much I can tell you about it. But, you know, I can, uh, reverting back to my scientific maybe role here, I can tell you that a lot of study has been done on this. And the power of music to unlock pieces of our mind, to activate uh, portions of our mind, neurons and, and neural nets in our, our mind, is well known. In fact, it's known quite well with patients, uh, oftentimes elderly patients suffering from dementia or various other kinds of uh, uh, mental conditions that maybe shut them down. Music can unlock them. And, I, you know, I think there's a, several movies about this kind of thing. But it's, it's amazing if you do a search online for this kind of thing. There are videos of people who are quite shut down. And as soon as they're listening to music, it, it just activates all kinds of pieces of their mind and brings them kind of back into the world from even close to normal interactions for a while. So I can't explain why, but I certainly have these these experiences with chamber music, typically live music when I'm sitting there, and of course it's small, usually venues. And I'm as I'm listening to the music, things will come into my mind that are, I, as you said, as I said before, puzzles that I've been working on and not solving, and all of a sudden I have a path forward that gets illuminated. So it's just such an interesting thing. I grew up in the Midwest in which it is drilled into us that you are not special. (laughs) And so I figured if this happens to me, I'm probably not special. It probably happens to other people as well. Mm. And and again, that was the genesis of of the the work that we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, That's subject for a whole other project, uh, uh, program, you are not special. I've heard that from Midwesterners. (laughs) Uh, You know, we heard that uh, weekly from Garrison Keillor, you know, that, that kind of sensibility as well. Um, so, Robert Waters, t- tell me about uh, music as a performer. This, you know, this, uh, you're, and you're seeing the effect, I think you hope, right, in the audience, right? But you're feeling it yourself. Certainly. It's, uh, it's one of the great privileges um, of being a musician who performs live is that connection to an audience. And it's certainly something that we feel on the stage, even though in terms of what we're seeing, what we're taking in with our eyes is mostly each other and the notes on the page. We don't have a whole lot of time to dedicate to looking at what's happening in the audience, but there is definitely a connection um, to people. And we played in really large halls and we played uh, concerts in people's homes where people are just kind of right up against you. Uh, and kind of regardless of the venue, there's um, there's a really special, I would say, profound and, and in my own word, I uh, use the, the word sacred kind of connection where people are taking time out of their days to come to a performance that you're giving and you and your colleagues are giving. And they're there to get something that they can't get anywhere else. And so the, the I find that an incredible privilege to be able to connect to people and deliver something that was written either especially for you uh, because you commissioned it or something that was written 200 years ago and just create this moment of connection that only could happen in that setting in, in that moment. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's an incredible privilege and it's one that I, I became, I think all of us in the quartet became hooked on as kids and have never really lost. It's, it's, a, it's a true joy and um, yeah, great thing to be able to do on a regular basis. 
So Bradley, tell me, did, did that happen to you as a kid? Is, what was the genesis for you of this, this career? Absolutely. I mean, this sense of community is something that's just so important to the nature of music and also to the impact of the Crossroads Project. You know, there's something just very fundamentally human about making music. Uh, it predates language, and um, we really strongly believe as educators that making music makes better people. Um, and, um, you know, that the, the live component is such a, an important part of the Crossroads Project. I think that's one of the reasons that it does have impact is you have this sense of coming together with a group of people who maybe have thought a lot about this topic, who maybe are harboring um, feelings of, of desperation or worry and, and wanting to engage with the people around them and um, look for a way forward. Um, that all plays in, I think, to the our, our motivation for creating the project and uh, for uh, and and to the reasons that it has uh, sort of continued to engage audiences as as it's um, evolved. Mm. Rebecca McFall, tell me a little bit about how this is structured. You have you know Robert talks, you play. What how how's this uh, structured? <laughs> yeah, well the the initial premise for the structure um, was uh, simple on its face, but compelling I think, which was to look at um, the Earth's life support systems, water, um, food, meaning the oceans and um, soil at the basis of, of all of our food systems, and um, the biosphere, all the living bits of the planet, and to actually take take the time to really um, just sit with how one, how wondrous it is, how extraordinary these systems are um, in what they how they function and and what happens as a result of their function and um and then the the uh, the kind of paradigms of nature are juxtaposed against our societal systems which often work uh with completely different set of, sets of rules which are are running into nature's rules and it gives a a, a pretty um interesting structure to kind of take in this big picture idea Let's hear another piece of music. This is from Lara Kaminsky's Rising Tide, and uh, this is the second movement. Bios will uh, begin about 30 seconds uh, in. Anybody want to set this up? Bios is, um, yeah. well, you won't hear the beginning, but it starts extremely softly. And I always think of, of, um, of it as, as like uh, molecules, like life-forming. It's really um, uh, kind of... Uh, iridescent in its kind of musical color to me and the way things kind of collide and then coalesce and then burst forth um, is quite evocative. Well, this is the uh, part of the second movement from Laura Kaminsky's Rising Tide Fry Street Quartet are the performers. Thank you. 
So that is uh, some music from uh, BIOS, the second movement from Laura Kaminsky's Rising Tide, the Fry Street Quartet, uh, performing there. Bradley, you were kind of nodding your head in time. Would you, what were you thinking? Uh, <laughs> well, I, you... I was actually thinking about the ephemeral nature of music. You know, uh, this is uh, recording something like this, it sort of brings to light the the fact that nothing ever happens the same way twice. And particularly with this movement, you know, we're bouncing off our our bows off the strings and we're re- re- responding to each other, uh, much like, you know, Rebecca was talking about the way molecules and early forms of life were sort of reacting to one another. We, we sort of live in the moment, you know, and that's um, very much true, whether it's Beethoven or Kaminsky, uh, we never play the same piece twice. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's a wonderful thought, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, well, let's take another break. Uh, we're talking with members of the Fry Street Quartet. We're talking with Robert Waters on the violin, Rebecca Bookfall, violinist, uh, Bradley Otteson, violist, and uh, we mentioned that Anne Francis Bayless, the cellist, is not with us um, today. Uh, Dr. Robert Davies, physicist, is with us as well. And uh, Dr. Davies, along with Fry Street Quartet, performs Crossroads Project. And the the next performance is November 14th, a week from Monday, um, in the performance hall? In the Danes, actually. Oh, the Danes, okay. The the larger hall. The larger hall. And this, you said, is a free performance. It is. It's free and open to the public. And and it's been quite a few years since we've performed it here in Logan. So we're excited to bring it back. So you get the full splendor of it, not just uh, yes. what you're hearing on the radio. You get the, get the full piece, including, uh, of course, Dr. Davies uh, speaking, and uh, it's multimedia, right? It's visuals it yes. as well? Yeah. So uh, November 14th, what time? 7.30. 7.30 in the Danes Concert Hall, um, and it's free. Yes. Very good. Do you have to get tickets to reserve a place, or you just show up? I think you can just show up. There's okay. plenty of room yeah. in the Danes. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> Oh, we'll look forward to that. Uh, let's uh, take a break. Come back with our final segment. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking with members of the Fry Street Quartet. They're the quartet in residence at Utah State University and physicist Dr. Robert Davies. Um, and they together um, have, have conceived, um, produced, the, and performed the Crossroads Project. A multimedia project and uh, about climate change, right? Yeah. Well, about global change. Global I would change, say. okay, yeah. yeah, and human vibrancy. All right, like very good. And uh, if you're, if we piqued your interest here, you can, if you're in northern Utah, you can come and see this. Uh, the free performance, November fourteenth, seven thirty p.m. Dane's Concert Hall on the USU campus. And you can uh, you come and and uh, and see it. You know, Tom, I want to interrupt <clears throat> and just point out for a moment that. Uh, the reason that this is actually free and open to the public, it's our 10th anniversary. Uh, we premiered this 10 years ago here. And as Rebecca said, it's been a little while, several, a number of years since we performed it here in Logan. We've had over 50 performances around the country. We've had performances in three countries. Um, and, and it was developed right here with a lot of support from USU, from different colleges and departments, uh, the president's office. And I think the Kane College of the Arts in particular is uh, was, was a huge amount of support. And so is actually offering this to the public as, a, as kind of a, a celebration of, of this project that's now um, had such a life to it that was developed right here at USU. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Uh, I want to get into uh, these last two pieces. So let's go immediately to the third uh, movement from Laura Kaminsky's Rising Tide, uh, Forage. 
um, we're gonna we're gonna hear the finale from this. Brooke, do you want to say anything about this? Well, Forage is a is a sort of fast and furious movement, and and I always think about just every living thing on the planet needing to eat mm-hmm. <laughs> every day, <laughs> and so there's this tremendous energy and scurrying about in this um, in this particular movement, which is a lot of fun. All right, let's hear the last couple of minutes uh, from uh, the third movement, Forage, from Laura Kaminsky's Rising Tide, uh, Fry Street Quartet performing. Wonderful. It's the finale from the third movement of Laura Kaminsky's Rising Tide. You heard the Fry Street Quartet. There we have them in studio along with uh, Dr. Robert Davies. We just have a few minutes uh, left in in the program. Dr. Davies, I wanted to ask you about this. I watched the trailer to... Uh there is a trailer on online here to uh, to the Crossroads Project. Yes, we call it a sizzle reel. A sizzle reel. <laughs> yeah. So I watched the sizzle reel. You said uh, uh, something there that uh, really struck me. Uh, you said, pick something and make it yours. I guess you're talking about action, something that you want people to do? Right. So certainly the uh, one of the goals, a major goal of the performance is to move people to a place of response. And uh, we have two refrains throughout the performance. Uh, the first one is, the time has come for us to believe what we know. So the idea is this, our, our system of knowledge is telling us we have these challenges, and now it's really time for us to respond. And the second refrain is, uh, then we tell you what we know. <laughs> and then the second refrain is, okay, well, what do we do with it? And the idea is all of these things are so connected that no matter who you are and what your interests are and what your talents are and even what your capacities are, there is work for you to do that you will be interested and engaged in if you're a chef or a farmer or an architect or a radio host or a violinist or even a violist, for goodness sakes. Um <laughs> Uh, there is work for everyone to do here. And so we can't tell you how you need to respond. Uh, 
But the idea is the power of community is that so much needs to be done. We don't all need to do everything, but we all need to do something. And so your sort of first assignment from coming out of the performance is to figure out what that thing is for you. And so that's that refrain. So pick something and make it yours. And you don't have to do everything, but we all have to do something. Yeah. Um, I guess the last question uh, for you, Rebecca McFall. I was reading uh, the, the notes to this recording, the CD that you uh, brought for me. Um, and it was either, and by the way, it's uh, the music of Laura Kaminsky and Libby Larson on this CD. Right. I guess this is probably available too, this, yes, this it CD. Yes, yeah. um, And one of those composers, I can't remember which, uh, said they admired you, uh, your passion for this idea that music is an agent, can be an agent of change. Tell me briefly about that. <laughs> um, I guess I, I do believe that. I believe that music is uh, is a really powerful agent for change and has been throughout the ages. It's not a new idea. I mean, certainly um, if you think about, uh, well, you know, in any genre, music of, of the 1960s in response to um, the war or George Crumb's Black Angels um, as a, com- a social commentary. Or I guess in this case, um, I want to riff on what, what Brad was speaking about earlier. What I had in mind was was to, to depoliticize this topic and come together as a community, explore the wonders of nature, take a look together at how we might respond, and hopefully that music at the heart of it can... Um, can be central to to doing that, to bringing us together in a positive way so that we might find a way forward. Hmm. Robert Waters, uh, just 30 seconds. What, what, what would you suggest people come looking for when they come on the 14th to, to this, this performance or maybe what's your favorite part of the, of this project? That's a, that, that's a tough one. Um, I, one of the things I think we're most proud of is wrestling with this topic in such a way that um, delivers a very serious message, uh, unvarnished message about where we are uh, in, uh, in in 2022 with regards to the health of our planet and the health of our society, um, not pulling any punches. and putting the onus on all of us, every single one of us on this uh, planet, to, um, to take ownership of where we are and to um, come together as a community to move forward and chart a different course from the one that we're currently on. Uh, there, what we wanted to um, avoid uh, was uh, what happens so often in some of these documentaries that we see where there's a lot of bad news on one particular topic and two-thirds of the movie is dealing with that. And then the last third is, um, but there's here's the hope of all these wonderful communities of people who are doing this, uh, all this wonderful work to help uh, right the ship and take us in the right direction. And so in a sort of certain way that um, let's the audience off the hook. And we wanted to make sure that without making people so depressed that they would just go home and stare at a wall for three straight days, <laughs> uh, that people really would understand that each one of us is an important part of both the problem and the solution to where we are right now. And I feel that all of us are pretty proud of um, how we've been able to construct uh, that narrative throughout the performance. 
The uh, perform next performance is on the USU campus, uh, the Danes Concert Hall, seven thirty. Um, Crossroads Project, free to the public. Not November fourteenth. November fourteenth. What did I say? Uh, you said seven thirty. Just show up at seven thirty every night, and you'll you'll do. So thank you. Fourteenth. Fourteenth. Seven thirty. Uh, so it would just have like fifteen seconds. Uh, so now for something completely different. Uh, give me the details on La Llorona. Bradley. Uh, La Llorona will be December 6th. Okay. Um, the USU Symphony Orchestra. All right. December 6th, USU Symphony Orchestra, La Llorona. That's right. And uh, featuring the, the viola. And, yes. Uh, and the music of Gabriella Lena Frank, which okay. is, she's one of our um, partners and another great activist, um, yes. a musician citizen. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, You can find The Crossroads Project at thecrossroadsproject.org. Well, we've been talking with uh, Robert Waters, Rebecca McFall, and Bradley Otteson from the Fry Street Quartet, and uh, Dr. Robert Davies, uh, physicist, who's a part of this project as well. Thank you, everyone, for coming in. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody, to, uh, to Access Utah. Utah Public Radio, Citizens Academy, Session 14. I heard a politician a couple of weeks ago claim to be a fighter. He was being attacked in this dogfight business we now call political debate. I can't understand why we citizens tolerate such displays from otherwise good and decent people. The politician said something like, he will fight anybody and everybody over anything he thinks is wrong. The thought came to me, he who fights everybody over everything soon fights alone. I understand that he was making the point that he is willing to stand up for his convictions, even when it may be difficult, which can be a good thing. Still, it seems to me that fighting is not the ideal way to solve a difference of opinion. If we must talk about fighting at all, I would prefer something like, I know how to fight if I have to, but I seem to do better by building relationships than winning fights. How did we get here anyway? I can't imagine any of us learning that this constant bickering is acceptable behavior among civilized people. It certainly is not the kind of behavior anyone I know was taught as proper by their parents. What happened to how to win friends and influence people? Or all I need to know I learned in kindergarten. Surely our politicians understand that they are our models. Power-based politics has become our governing paradigm to win at any cost, even at the expense of decency, truth, and the general welfare. Today's highly contentious politics should disgust us all. No longer is it power-based politics. It has become violence-based politics. Surely we know better. Surely we can do better. Now has occurred yet another hideously perverted violent act aimed at our nation's leaders, this time Nancy Pelosi and her husband Paul, who was struck in the head with a hammer. Apparently, the best way the poor soul who allegedly did it could conjure up to express his anger was to kill. Some extremists even applaud the attempt and regret the failure to assault Speaker Pelosi herself. Angry contention, violence, even deadly violence, have become the defining characteristic of our political society in the United States of America, a place we have claimed to be the beacon of hope for integrity, 
peace, prosperity, and liberty in the world. And here we are, a nation of weekly mass killings, mass violence, ridiculous displays of childish attacks masquerading as political debate, even swarming violent attacks on the most revered symbols of democracy in our sacred homeland. Is this really who we have become? Surely not. Is it? I believe there is enough good in us, and there are enough good among us to rescue our country from the inevitable implosion at the end of this self-destructive path we are on. But to turn the tide, we must change. We must change now. We need a new paradigm. We must realize that we all do better by building relationships than by winning fights. That way, we, our children, and our country can survive. If we continue on our present path, we may not survive. Is it too late? I hope not. It begins with you and me, every one of us. It is done one relationship at a time, and now is the time. And when you vote, choose peacemakers. Choose those who know how to get along with and work with others, especially with those who may disagree with them. I'm not recommending electing weaklings. I am recommending those who care about the welfare of others. They know that a happy, healthy society depends upon healthy, mutually beneficial, and pleasant relationships. They're strong, but they are benevolent and they wear velvet gloves. We need them in office now. Or is it too late? I hope not, but I am worried. This is Richard Ratliff for Citizens Academy. Thanks for listening. Till next time.